Hello, I'm Tony Berini, and I'd like to welcome you to the podcast series, What Leaders Say. And that's exactly what this series is all about. It's about sharing wisdom, knowledge, information, whatever it might be, whatever the individual decides he want, he would like to share with our listening audience. And this has been a wonderful series. Uh, lots of people have uh, given feedback about how it's made a difference in their life. And today I'm very honored to be with Alan Wilson. He is South Carolina's Attorney General, and he is uh, very gracious of his time. And uh, we're going to learn what he has to say. So with no further ado, Alan, just tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us some of the things you'd like to share. Well, Tony, first off, thank you for having me on this podcast edition. Uh, you told me some of the, the other leaders that you've uh, interviewed around the state of South Carolina. It's a pretty impressive group of folks, and um, I'm honored to be counting among them. Uh, first, a uh, little bit about me. I am, um, uh, I've just been, about two years ago, I was elected my second term. So I've been Attorney General now for six years. I was elected in 2010, took office in 2011. Um, at the time that I was elected Attorney General, I was the youngest Attorney General in the country, age 37. So I'm really proud of, to have been able to achieve that in my lifetime. Um, and again, I achieved it because of all the people that I had around me, not because of myself. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. Um, the, my, I guess my proudest accomplish, accomplishment is my two children. I'm a, I'm a husband uh, to Jennifer Wilson and a father to Michael and Anna Grace. My son Michael uh, will be nine years old here in about two weeks. Uh, my daughter Anna Grace is seven. Um, they're the light of my life. And I tell people all the time, you know, being attorney general is what I do. Being a dad is who I am, and so that that is how that is how I hope that I am defined after I'm dead is by what I did as a dad, not in this job. But uh, in addition to being attorney general for six years and being married and, and, and having two children, I've also been in the National Guard for 20 years. I'm an Iraqi War veteran. I served in Operation Iraqi Freedom Two in 2004 and five. I uh, spent my first 10 years in the military as a field artillery officer. In the last 10 years, um, as a Staff Judge Advocate. I'm currently at the headquarters for the National Guard and I'm supporting their missions right now as a lieutenant colonel, soon to be colonel. So I'm really excited about my, my service in the military as well as my service to government and uh, obviously my service to my family. That, uh, thank you so much for your service. Uh, that is, that's amazing. I mean, that's, have you found that the military service has helped you in what you do day in and day out as mm -hmm. the state attorney general? Immensely. Um, absolutely. Um, and I will tell you, my first lesson in leadership came when I was a young uh, field artillery second lieutenant. And, and frankly, the lessons I learned as a 23-year-old second lieutenant uh, were applied in my role as attorney general. And, and I'll tell you how that came to be. Uh, my first day in the Army, um, I was approached by a young captain who was mentoring me at the time. He was my first battery commander. And he said, Lieutenant, lieutenant Wilson, I want you to get out there in that motor pool. And I want you to turn a wrench with those sergeants and those specialists in this practice. And I want you to get dirty and hot and sweaty and cold. You're out there in the rain. You're out there in the heat with them. Whatever they're going through, you go through with them. And you let them teach you how to do their jobs. And he then said, Lieutenant Wilson, when we go to the field, you're always the last one to go to bed. You're always the first one to wake up in the morning. And you will always be the last one to go to the chow line. Now, my 23-year-old ego just made it through college, got this gold bar on my chest, right, on my shoulder. Um, you know, I feel like I'm a leader. I've worked hard to accomplish this title, to achieve this rank, and now you're telling me I have to be the least among them. You know, but what I learned very quickly, within days of this lesson, is that leadership is not about 
perks and privileges. It's not about the benefits that come with it. It's about service. It's about putting the needs of those who are subordinate to you ahead of your own. And that is what he was trying to illustrate with me. You know, as, as a young leader, um, I learned that my job is to make sure that my people are taken care of and that it is not my job as a leader of an organization to be the best at everything or to be the, uh, the smartest at everything. Um, a lot of young leaders make the mistake of surrounding themselves with people who are, who are not as smart as they are or not as accomplished as they are. And the reason they pick them is because of that. They want them to look, they want to look better by surrounding themselves with people who aren't that good. And that does, not only does that not serve the organization they're leading, it doesn't serve them. I, I'm just the opposite. As a leader, you've got to have a lot of humility. And you have to you have to check your ego at the door, and you have to be willing to surround yourself with people who you, who are either smarter or better than you. You look at our most successful coaches on, on your favorite college team. You know they have a lot of athletes on that team that are better than the coach is, more athletic than the coach. Might even have a better um, athletic IQ than the coach does. But the coach's job is to take that human capital and to leverage it to win games, to put those people in the right position and coach them to a place where they can score touchdowns or baskets and do tackles or blocks or whatever it is they're supposed to be doing. At the end of the day, the coach gets the win, but that athlete gets the glory on the field. The same thing in a business organization or a government organization. My job as the Attorney General is to basically put people in a position where they can advance the mission of that organization. And let me close to this question, this final thought. I talked about how I felt my first day as a lieutenant when I'm standing in front of a unit of, of, of young men who were not only young, some of them were 20, 25 years older than me, but they're all saluting me and calling me sir. And saying, what do you want us to do? That is a very humbling experience to be the boss of a bunch of people who are better than you. Fast forward 14 years, I'm a 37 newly elected state attorney general. I'm looking around the boardroom, the conference room of our office, and I've got a lot of people in there who have had law degrees almost as long as I've been alive, calling me general and saying, what do you want us to do? I was like that young second lieutenant all over again. And what I, re what I recognize in that moment is my job is not to be better than them, but just to put them in a place where they can best represent the mission of this office. And that is probably the most valuable thing I learned from the military, is in leadership, is to surround yourself with the best people, and to empower them to do good things for the organization. I, I, I commend you for that. And I'm, I, I think it's so great that you learned that lesson. I know a lot of people, I haven't, I, I served in the military myself. And, Thank and, you, by the way. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, you know, I was like yourself in that I was a second lieutenant. And I was uh, like yourself, very wise enough, or I don't know, just lucky and fortunate enough to where I went to my first sergeant and said, tell me what I need to do. Um, and they'll tell you what you need to do. Um, but you're right. I mean, that is awesome. That, you know, I tell, and I tell all these young people today in particular, um, if you're not sure what you want to do, go serve in the military. Because the, the things that you're going to learn to do, whether or not it's just simple things as organization, um, and I'll, I'm going to address this a little bit on you, uh, is, you know, it, and is go in the military, learn to take orders, have some organization and so on and so forth. But the bigger thing that I, that I think, I mean, you've learned a lot, but what I also noticed about yourself 
and then we'll go back to you is is how you your demeanor and how you handle yourself your body language and i think that's another byproduct of the military you 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 know it's almost like without you telling me that i didn't know that you served in the military i didn't know your complete bio but i can tell by how you walk and you talk and your body language yeah that's 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 an officer i mean that's somebody that's got his he's basically squared away so i commend you for that well, I've been very lucky both in my civilian career and in my military career, and even in my political career. I have had uh, men and women who were older than me and been there and done that who showed me the right way to do it. The worst thing that a young person can have happen is that they get a bad mentor early in their career that kind of sets them on the wrong path. It is hard to unlearn bad habits. And that is why I am so, that is why I feel that any success I've experienced in my short life has been because I was lucky enough to have, first off, parents and mentors who taught me the right way to be early in my time, and then I grew in the right direction. You know, so, so a twig is said, a mighty oak grows, and, um, and, and, and that is something I believe wholeheartedly, that the direction I've not been set to go in was planted in me a long time ago. Well, speaking of mentors, who have been some of your mentors? Because uh, in, in our program, we've mentioned that numerous times. A lot of people that are very successful and said, hey, go out there and find mentors. But who have been some of your mentors? And, and, and more specifically, when you mention a mentor, what was it you learned from that mentor? Because I think the other thing, too, is you may not learn everything you need to learn from one person because you got to be your own self. But what were the highlights from that particular mentor that? That have helped mold you to what you are now. Well, I could probably rattle off a list of twenty people. I'm not going to do that, but I could. Right. Uh, that have had some impact on me, but just I'll think a couple off the top. Okay. First, let me start with my father. Oh yeah. Um, listen, I was adopted when I was four years old. My biological father was tragically killed when um, when I was two years old in the military. He was killed in a helicopter crash. My mother was fortunate enough to meet and marry uh, my current dad, Joe. He's been my father since I was four years old. He adopted me. But this is a man who every night he'd come and hear my prayers when I was a little boy. And beside my bedside table was a picture of my biological father and a picture of him. Wow. And he would, and he would never let me forget the memory of my biological father. He was not intimidated by that. And he wanted me to have that memory. And my mom told me years later that she once asked Joe, my, my dad, who I refer to as dad now, wow. who do you love? Do you love Alan as much as you love your other three sons? And he looked up and then he said, Roxanne, I love you longer. <laughs> how, how could I love him less than the others? So, I mean, it, it's just a powerful testimony uh, for to have a man with the kind of moral fiber integrity that he had. And he has just been an amazing um, public servant. And, you know, I tell people all the time, what you see in public is what you get in private with him as a father. I was also blessed to have a, a early mentor in my legal career, Mark Westbrook, who was a circuit judge, who was also tragically killed mm. in a car accident in 2005 when I returned from Iraq. He he was there, um, and he mentored me early in my legal career. In fact, he was the one that put me in a position that changed the trajectory of my career. I had planned to be a real estate attorney uh, when I graduated law school, so to be a transactional lawyer. And he gave, me a, uh, he gave me a job as his law clerk, which put me in the courtroom sitting on the bench with the judge. And I got to be exposed to the trial attorneys, the prosecutors, and the criminal defense attorneys who would, would do legal and oral combat in court. And I fell in love with that production, that theater. And it, and it was something I was terrified of doing. Mm. It was he who challenged me to face my fear, to put myself out there, 
and overcome it. And that is what led me to be a prosecutor. Uh, was that time, that one year that I was as a law clerk, and really changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and then, and then there's there's a lot of other mentors I've had along the way. I've had um, uh, military mentors, people in the military. I've had other family mentor, men, um, members who mentored me, um, friends who have been peers. They weren't necessarily older than me, but they were peers who held me accountable, uh, both in my professional walk and, and my my faith, my Christian walk. Uh, faith is very important to me, and I've had people who have been held me accountable as a pastor. And then I've had people um, who are younger than me and who I have chosen to mentor. As I mentor them and I see them do things, I'm like, wait a second, I can learn something from this. Like, like that private that I was you know, That's right. checking my ego on. I, I look at younger people and see how they handle themselves. And sometimes I see how not to do something, and I adopt that. And sometimes I see how they do something with a great deal of maturity, and I adopt that. So you can learn from anyone. That's an interesting point you bring up. I think a lot of times people think you can only learn from someone older, but you know, it's just like looking at a child's smile or little simple things of life of, you know, them appreciating the simplicity of life. And there's, there's things to be learned there too. So you're right. I mean, even younger, you can learn. It doesn't have to be older people. And that's a good, that's a, that's an interesting point that you bring up. Well, success is a good teacher. Failure is a greater teacher. <laughs> and, uh, Amen to that. But not only the failures of other people, but my own failures in life. You know, I have, you know, no one is perfect. Um, and so I tell people every good or great decision I've ever made that the public has had the chance to see um, was because of uh, the we, the counsel I took from the people that I surrounded myself with. Every public perceived failure I've ever had was something I did on my own. And that because I failed on my own, I will never make that mistake again. That's, you know, and I tell people all the time, it's okay. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the whole thing about life is try to make the best decisions you can. But at some point, you've got to kind of take the leap of faith. And, you know, you, you got to have faith in God. You've got to have faith in yourself. And you got to have faith that what you visualize, you, you can, in fact, you know, I think that's the big thing is, is if you can visualize it, you can see it, you can make it happen. Absolutely. But a lot of people just, you know, again, it's they're afraid of failure, failure, if you will. And I like the fact that you bring that up. I mean, it's okay to fail. And as a matter of fact, a lot of successful people, and you, I'm sure you know them too, they have failed two or three times or more. And guess what? They just get back up and say, okay, I learned what not to do. Well, you know, Michael Jordan once said he killed his way to the top. It, know, that's, yeah. Abraham Lincoln lost almost every race he ever ran or was defeated um, or failed every attempt until he got the nomination uh, to be president of the United States, which he also ultimately won. Um, and, you know, for me, failure, I look at failure. Look, look at how, how do you build muscle? How, how do athletes build muscle? They tear muscle down. They, they work things to muscle failure. And muscle comes back stronger. Failure in life, it builds persistence. It builds resilience. It teaches you, you know, you can't truly uh, learn something until you've been knocked off of it. you got to learn to crawl back on you got to learn to stand back up. You know, life's not about how far you get hit. It's about how far you get hit and keep going. And so that ability to be resilient, persistent, to overcome. You, know, you look at the movie Rudy. One of my mm. favorite sports movies of all time, based on Rudy Ruger, Ruger's life, shows that when you don't give up, you become what you think about. If you think about great things, you will become and do great things. That's a great point. And again, I mean, he didn't give up. 
was it you was it the uh, Notre Dame? Yeah. Was that Notre Dame player in the seventies? Yeah. I mean, and that's uh, they made a movie about it, and that's just uh, you know. Then, here's the thing, Tony. In that movie, he had one play, maybe two, and it took him six years to get there. He got one one chance to play for just a minute, and you can't name another player, at least I can, on that on that that squad in the early seventies. But they made a movie about Rudy Rudiger, and here we are talking about yep. his failures that led to that brief success, which really didn't yield anything for the team. But it's inspired a generation of people to watch that movie. So you never know what small act that you accomplish may not be big in your mind, but it can be life changing in someone else's. That's an interesting point. Yeah, you're right. And I think a lot of people tend to again there there's a fear factor of failure and that and I you know, which to me ties into self confidence is you gotta have the confidence in yourself and your abilities that you can in fact make it, which is again what most industry leaders that I know, that's a component that their their self confidence level is pretty high. Mm-hmm. And they're not afraid of failing. And if they make a, and if they fail, they admit it and it's not like they hide it or conceal it. They're they're very upfront of, okay, at least now we know what not to do. I was reading a book a while ago. I, I want to say it was a book by John C. Maxwell or someone who's in the comment. Oh he's great. He, he writes a lot of good stuff that I read. Um, I have his book on my bookshelf next to another book by Tony Baritti that I read last year when you gave me a book on leadership. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he talks a lot about um, a lot of the ingredients of successful people. And he, in one of the books he was writing, he said there was uh, somebody, uh, one of the former employers who hired someone to be vice president of the company. This guy had failed in another company. And they said, why are you hiring that guy? He's a failure. And the, and the, the CEO said, I hired him because he was a failure. Because people who have never failed don't know what it's like to overcome that failure. Right. And, and also, they feel a stronger sense of urgency to succeed moving forward. And so I, I thought that was kind of an interesting concept. So when I think of people who have failed, in the past, those are the people you want on your team uh, because now they're going to be even more driven to succeed because you don't get not many people get a second chance. And so when you get them on your team, this is their second chance. They're not going to let you down. That's that's interesting. You bring up uh, Maxwell, and I agree. I I like reading his stuff. The in conjunction with that, what you just said reminded me of. I just recently read, or a couple years ago, uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, mm-hmm. and what. He didn't necessarily talk about failure, but what he talks about, which dovetails into what you're referring to, for me, um, and I'd like for our audience to think about this, is in in good to great, is understand your shortcomings. Understand, you know, he calls it the hedgehog concept, is that you can't be good at everything. And sometimes failure is realizing you cannot be everything to everybody. And we, I think in business, in the business world, sometimes we try to not necessarily delegate. We try to do too much and we don't necessarily stay within our unique abilities. And what he mentioned was in the hedgehog concept of, you know, find out what you're good at and stick to it. And part of failure is a lot of people, we, you know, take on things, we fail. And then instead of, okay, I call it in the military. We go back to the military. We used to do after action reports. Anytime we had a military exercise, we would have the after action of what went well, what didn't go well, and what can we improve on. And from that, it was lessons learned. Same thing in the business world. You, you go out there and you fail, or it's not a, a success per se. 
have an after action report of, okay, what is it we don't need to be doing? And let's focus in on our, or what our core business might be or whatever the core operation might be. So. No, I, and, and I brought some of that with me from the military, you know, doing AARs, as we call them, yeah. interaction reviews, you know. Yeah. And I always ask people when we finish doing some major thing, what are three things we did right? What are three things we did wrong? If you can think of them. If, if we did it right, let's make a note to sustain it. If we did it wrong, let's figure out how we don't make those same mistakes again and, and learn and grow from it. So absolutely, that is, those are the things the military taught me. But and I agree, and I guess I I learned the same thing. Whenever we did a military exercise, it was even if it was just moving from let's say from Charleston to Columbia, in some type of execution convoy or whatever it might be, and trying to logistics, and you moved and you say, okay, here's what worked well with the radios, or you know, what type of communication, how many breaks, and all these things that you learn. Um, but again, I that to me, those lessons. And I tell people all the time, my military, I would not be where I'm at in the business world today without having served in the military because simple things like that. Because what I see in, a lot, in the business community, I see lots of times people, they go out, they execute, they don't do well. And guess what's crazy is, is they end up doing the same things over and over again, which is almost like the, the Einstein theory of the definition of insanity. You know, and what we're talking about is, is which is really important, is, you know, you can you know, go out. Don't be afraid of failure. And if you fail, fine. What's what is the AAR after action review? I call it AAR, you know, after action report of what are the things we don't want to do so that we don't do them again. Well, one thing, and I did get this from a John C. Maxwell book. It was called Attitude 101. And uh, I read this as a short book, but um, basically um, he talks about attitudes probably the most important ingredient in, in leadership. And here's the thing I tell when I interview people, the Office of the Attorney General. I tell young lawyers, I would rather you have be an average lawyer with minimal confidence. You got to be confident. Can can't can be incompetent. But I would rather have you be an average lawyer of average confidence with an amazing attitude, a great attitude, than an amazing lawyer who's brilliant but has a lousy attitude. I mean, attitude determines your altitude in life. You you know, attitude is also it's the one thing that is contagious. Um, you can't catch someone's talent or their skill. In most cases, you can't catch their work ethic. You might be inspired by it, but you're not going to catch it. But attitude is the one thing in an organization that is contagious. If you have if you have a poison pill in your organization that is that is just has a lousy attitude, it can destroy morale and it can, it can lead a country, uh, a company, or organization down the wrong path. But someone who's got an amazing attitude can really make all the difference in the world, and it can catch and it can spread. Uh. And you said Maxwell, and I and I completely agree, hundred percent. I mean, you, you, that's another thing too is with industry leaders, they send it. They they it's it's it, one of their traits, other than the fact that you can tell. The, I call command presence when they walk into a room, their demeanor, the vibrational frequencies that they put out. But a lot of the vibrational frequency is the at their attitudes. Without people, and an attitude is something that you don't necessarily you're talking or communicating. It's just people can tell. When you're in a good mood and when you're not in a good mood, and it's not necessarily what you say, it's it's it may be how you say it or whatever. And that back to Maxwell, you know, the person that influenced that with me that I read was Zig Ziglar. Oh yeah. And Zig, you know, I used to listen to his tapes back in the old days where there was the eight track and all that, and it was it was all about the number one thing that he stressed was your attitude. 
because if you've got the right attitude, you know, you may not do right, but people are going to people are going to want to help you to be successful. Mm-hmm. People are going to want to help you to succeed. Uh, and in this world, we all need people to help us. We're not islands. You got to, just like you said earlier at the very beginning of this thing, you were talking about your team and your staff and surrounding yourself with good people. Back to your military career, you had there was an existing organization that you became a member of, and stepping in and and learning from that and participating. But again, I think when you go in the attitude of help me versus let me show you, again that I call that attitude. You know, oh, it absolutely is. It's a component of attitude, one hundred percent of the time. Also, um, I think it's important for leaders to have a high emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I know that there have been. I think uh, there was a guy that wrote for the uh, Harvard Business Journal years ago. Coleman was his name, I believe, who wrote about the the ability to have empathy and have have a high emotional intelligence, be, being self aware. Um, I believe everyone has a superpower or a talent or, or a set of talents that you know gives them the opportunity to be successful. I am not the best looking guy in the world, so I'm never going to be a male model or a movie star. I am not uh, a super athlete. I like to run, but I'm never going to be a professional athlete. I'm not a dancer or a singer. Um, I'm not a fancy chef. I, I, I don't. Those are not my talents. But I, I have a superpower. I would say with self awareness. And I think that's important because a lot of people are not self-aware of where, where areas that they are deficient in. I know where I am deficient. I know where my, where my weaknesses are. And if so right now someone's driving down the road, they're probably making a joke. Yeah, I know where you're deficient too. But everybody has a weakness. Everybody that is a human being has a weakness. And knowing your weaknesses makes you very strong. Another thing, I also am aware of those areas in which I am ignorant. Everybody's ignorant of something. There are those things that you don't know that you don't know. And I'm very well aware that there are things that I don't know. And I'm usually pretty aware of the areas that I'm not aware of. And if you can follow that, that is why that is, that is where I hire people. That is where I surround myself with people. And, you know, understanding when the morality organization is not where it should be. Understanding when you have employees that are struggling. You know, being aware of that, knowing how to treat them, and to address their, their concerns. So when people come to this organization, I always tell them in the interview process, I want you to have ownership of this organization. You know, while my name may be on the door and I'm the elected person, this office is no more my office than it is your office. Now, I can't give them a stock share. I can't sell them a piece of, fur- a piece of furniture saying this is your share of the office. But I can give them ownership in the sense that if you see there's a better way to do something, if you see there's a better policy, another process, another rule that we should implement or take out, and you want to see that go into effect, bring it to our attention. And if your idea is the best idea, not only will I implement that idea, but I will give you credit for it in front of all of your peers. I'll, you know, and I think it's important that they, no matter what, it can be a custodial staff, it can be a secretary, a paralegal, a lawyer, it doesn't matter who they are in the organization, they should get credit for the good things they bring to the table because then that will give them ownership. The ability to change something is the sense of ownership in it. You know, people don't take care of rental cars and hotel rooms the way they take care of their house or their car because they don't have ownership of it. That's someone else's property. I'm just going to use it for this period of time and then, and then chuck it. You know, I believe that when you give them ownership, the sense of, I can change this thing, they'll take better care of it. And I think that is one of the things that is uh, that helped me be successful in this job. That's that's great. And um, 
just to touch on that, I would say again, kudos to you for recognizing that because again, most most team members, employees, you know, the biggest component is not necessarily pay. It's are they appreciated, and do, do they feel valued at work? And I think when you start getting their buy-in, where you value their opinion and you implement their opinion, the message is, hey, I. I value you. And that that to people is so important. What sucks is when they go to work and they're, you know, they're just, quote, doing their jobs, but they're not, they don't feel like they're contributing to the overall organization. And when you, when you incorporate that element, it's, it's, it's so intangible. I can just tell all your staff members that I've met and come in contact with, uh, I would say, yeah, I can, I I believe that because you, you seem to be really, really good about, uh, they, they all seem happy. I certainly hope so. No, they, they've not, been great. I don't want to. <laughs> listen, anytime you have an organization, I have over 200 employees in this organization. Wow. I can almost guarantee you somewhere in this building there is someone who is not happy or doesn't feel challenged or doesn't like something. And I don't, I'm not aware of it. Yeah. You know, and I tell people, if you don't put me on notice, I can't fix it. That's correct. I can't fix those things I'm aware of. But, but it's impossible to have 100% satisfaction. But you have to, to the degree that you can, make the people in your organization feel comfortable bringing constructive criticism to your attention. And it's okay. A lot of people don't feel that they can come and complain. Um, there was a quote by Colin Powell a couple of years ago, and I used to have it outside my door frame, but it says, the day that soldiers quit coming to you and bringing their complaints to you um, is the day that they believe that you either can't help them or that you don't care about them. And, and so when, when people bring me complaints and criticisms, I, what I, the only thing I ask is be constructive. Correct. Uh, I mean, be, don't be destructive in your, your criticism, but be constructive. But bring me your, your criticism. And that is, first off, it makes me feel good because I believe that I've created an environment where you feel like you're not going to be punished for speaking your mind. And that's important to me. And also, I like having the intelligence. Uh, I want the information because if we are doing something wrong, we need to have a diverse um, viewpoint that will allow us to change the direction of us. No, that's 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 great, and I completely agree with that point too. This has been an amazing interview here. We're at 30 minutes right now. I'd like to get in closing. Get any last comments that you have. Again, the goal with this is the car ride type experience because most people nowadays you know they don't have a whole lot of time so in, in closing what would be your final words that you'd like to or any viewpoints that you'd like to add or reinforce well not long ago i was talking to a general officer in the army who was talking about leadership and he was talking about this concept of toxic leadership um that some organizations claim to have toxic leadership he says if it's toxic leadership, it's not leadership. It's something completely different because real leadership is not toxic. And I really love that quote. And um, whatever organization you're in, whether you're a follower or a leader of that organization, it is, it is absolutely imperative that if you believe there's some, something toxic in the organization, you need to call it out, you need to address it. And if you don't feel like you can, uh, as a leader, receive that criticism, then maybe you're the problem. And if you're a person in that organization doesn't feel like you can bring it up, you either need to do a gut check and find the fortitude to do it, or you need to get out of that organization if you don't feel like they'll receive it, because that's not a good organization to be part of. Um, you need to have a positive attitude always. All leaders have got to have a positive attitude. And remember, whatever level of leadership you're at, you never complain down. You always complain up. 
that is toxic when you complain down. You, you lose the privilege, you lose the luxury of, of complaining when you take a leadership or management position in the organization. Um, and then last, uh, this would be my closing comment. I've mentored a lot of young people who were interested in the military, the law, politics, government, nonprofit support, things like that. And I tell them every major decision you will ever make in your life, you can apply this test to it. And this is the test that I applied when I was uh, deciding to run for attorney general. The test is this. If you're thinking about doing something very scary or something very awesome, the question, the test goes like this. If I don't do what I'm thinking about doing right now, 20 years from now, will I regret it? If the answer is yes, then you need, if the analysis should shift from whether you should do something to how you do it. Okay, you've already made the decision to do it. If yep. you don't live your life with regret, wow. and that is the decision I made to run for attorney general, I knew I would regret not doing it. I can live with losing. I couldn't live with not knowing. So apply that test and live with the few regrets in your life. And remember, your title is what you do, but who are you? That's another question to ask myself. That is so awesome. This this interview um, has been. I, I have learned so much. This has been great. Um, family to mentorship to failures to emotional intelligence to all of the things that you brought up and I love this about uh, don't live with regrets that is totally awesome I can't thank you enough and again this is Tony Barini I'm here with the state attorney general Alan Wilson and again I'm going to sign off and uh, thanks for listening